Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSE, and welcome to this evening's event. I'm Robin Mansell. I'm a professor of new media and the internet in the Department of Media and Communications here at the LSE. And it is my enormously great pleasure to welcome Professor Lord Sadowski and Professor Richard Sennett for this evening's uh, discussion. Tonight's lecture is the second in a series of lectures on welfare after beverage, which has been hosted and organized by Richard. And these are taking place here for the next three Wednesdays. So do come along to the rest of them. Richard Sennett is a sociologist and professor of sociology here at the LSE, and also university professor of the humanities at New York University. His research interests include the relationship between urban design and urban society, urban fa family patterns, the, welfare, the urban welfare system, the history of cities, and the changing nature of work. He served as a consultant on urban policy to the Labour Party and is a frequent commentator in the press. He's also author of multiple books, too numerous to name, I think, to, tonight, for the sake of brevity. But when I thought of the theme of tonight, I thought particularly of the culture of the new capitalism for some reason. Robert Sadowski is Emeritus Professor of Political Economy at the University of Warwick. His three-volume biography of John Maynard Keynes, which came out in 1983 and the last volume in 2000, has received numerous prizes. And in, and, two, and in 2018, he is the author of a book called Money and Government, A Challenge to Mainstream Economics. He was made a life peer in 1991 and a fellow of the British Academy in 1994. Tonight's discussion is focused on bare life. Basic income can provide the bare essentials of life permanently or it could provide bursts of help at strategic moments when one has the most need. An automated world, as many of you will be experiencing, disorients these concepts of basic income because automation is radically altering the ways in which people can support themselves through work. We're finding that new conditions of bare life are appearing and their impacts are being much debated in the UK and elsewhere. There is much discussion about how this is happening, how fast it is happening, and what, if anything, can be changed. For the Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag should be up there somewhere. Mm. It's hashtag LSE beverage. For those of you who have not yet turned off your mobile phones, can you please put them on silent? Thank you very much. This event will be recorded and will be available as a podcast, assuming there aren't any technical difficulties. After the speakers, there'll be a chance for you to put questions to both of them. Richard will begin and speak for about 45 minutes, and then he'll be followed by Lord Sadowski. So Richard, can I welcome you? Thank you. Thank you very much for, for coming. Um, I have one technical uh, thing to ask you. How do I actually turn on the slides? I'm an idiot, by the way. I'm one of the people who is going to be put out of work by automation because I simply... Okay, tell me. All right. I think I've got it. 
Um, I'll tell you what this is about. You are actually, um, I can't call you guinea pigs, but you're helping me think out um, a set of issues about what the welfare state should look like now, uh, how it should address new problems 75 years after in this, um, in this, in this institution, William Beveridge came up with the original version of the welfare state. What kind of new problems should it, it, it deal with? Um, Beveridge, for instance, had no idea that climate change could have anything to do with the welfare state. And as a, we'll explore in the next lecture, it has a lot to do with it. Um, old issues like um, income support have taken on a new kind of new configuration today due to uh, the advent of real automation. So, uh, I, you know, I don't have any answers about this, but I'm trying to explore in these lectures ways to think through something that's fresh with your help. And that's why we've given so much time for a discussion. We've also, thanks to my wonderful research assistants, uh, Sasha Milanova, created a, a website where all the charts and data in these lectures can be found. I don't know about you, when I, somebody shows me a chart for two seconds uh, and then shows another chart, I'm, I'm lost. Uh, all the data is there that we're referencing. Plus, um, it's a discussion forum, so uh, please use it, and I'll show it when we get through um, uh, with tonight's discussion. I'll just leave it up on, on, the, on the screen for you. And as I said, this is not just a courtesy. I really want, uh, these are issues I'm exploring, and the more, the more you respond and leave comments to me, the, the, the more I think it'll make a difference in both what I think and hopefully what the Labor Party, if and when we ever come back to power, under whom I don't know, <laughs> um, uh, does in place of the current system, which is a horrible system. Uh, tonight, what we're going to do is talk about the relationship between automation, worklessness, and uh, semi-worklessness, unemployment and underemployment, um, and its relation to basic income. And my part of this is in three parts. I'm going to briefly show you some data on automation. Uh, but for the most of this, I'm going to comment on what I know about this. I have spent most of my life interviewing workers. Uh, and that's included lots of workers who were both unemployed or underemployed, which is a more uh, salient category for us tonight. And I want to tell you a little about what that experience, uh, how that experience bears on the subject of automation. And then uh, the um, last part of this, uh, we'll talk about what concepts of uh, basic income could do about these problems or could not do. Uh, Bob is going to 
talk to us a little about the history of thinking about automation or machines and also grapple with a problem which I can't, which is what's the reality of job loss versus job creation in this new economy? So that's, that's the scene for tonight. Let me start, if I don't blow this up, by showing you some data. As I say this, well, it's all on the website. So I just show this to you. This is, this is a very crude chart to show you that um, uh, the, the basically the shape of what's happened to, to, work, to the workforce. You can see that in the last few years in the age of the information economy, that what we call tertiary work, that is financial or service work, has shot up, that the traditional ways of working have shot down. Uh, the relation of automation to that, this is again just a kind of overall chart about that, is that automation is going to create increasing demand for cognitive or what Robert Reich calls symbolic interpretive labor and uh, will create less and less human demand for manual labor and similarly uh, will uh, be more exploitative of routine jobs and less of non-routine jobs. This is crude. It's just an orientation of it. And um, I'm going to just skip here for that. The reason for that, as you can see in the UK, that it's crude is that automation can reach into many kinds of service and either in, even interpretive uh, jobs, for instance, voice recognition software and so on. Uh, so that it's not a simple thing that white collar is less immune than working class. In my own bailiwick in terms of cities, uh, this is a map that we made, which is a little more technical map, which shows you how automation distributes itself in terms of urban areas. And um, in the U.S., the large city which is most um, threatened by automation is Las Vegas, Nevada. Can you think of why? The croupier may be a thing of the distant past, that you can run an economy of, of uh, gambling entirely in a mechanized way, and they're already preparing for this. Um, here is the similar, a similar kind of map. I think this is your, yours, Bob. Of You can see how uh, auto, uh, risks of automation are very unevenly distributed geographically in Britain as well. We, um, uh, here's one small town in Britain, or one smallish town. For a New Yorker, anything under eight million is a village. So, But um, this, you, you can see the kinds of risks that are here. In administration and support, for instance, 
there are high risks to automation in this town, uh, brought by automation in this town. Um, whereas the manufacturing risks are relatively less. So this is a very complicated picture. Um, no, I'm not going to get to that for, for a bit. I'm going to leave you with this. We, we haven't gotten there yet. What I want to say about this in terms of what automation does is that automation comes in two forms, automated machines. One is a replicant and the other is a robot. And basically the difference between these two is that a robot mimics what a human being does but never gets tired, never asks for a, a wage increase, doesn't complain. Whereas a true robot does not mimic the human body in its um, workings. Uh, an example of a, of a replicant that we would know in the white-collar world is voice recognition software, or Alexa, uh, whom I don't know how you feel about her. I, it's my, if I ever become a murderer, she's first on, on the list. But she is a replicant, or if you think of a film like The Stepford Wives, you know. Whereas a robot, as in, uh, for instance, a car stamping um, uh, machine that stamps the panels, works in ways that have nothing to do with the human uh, arm hammering the machine. What's important about this is that what is happening in automation is that we are moving more and more towards the world of repli replicants is being more colonized, whereas the world of robots is moving, and I'll, I'll show you some data for, the, for this a little later, the, the robotization of manufacturing is moving much more slowly. And the reason for that is that very low-skilled manual labor, it's still cheaper to hire a human being for m many forms of manual labor than it is to invest in a robotic machine. Whereas replicants are easier to create because they're largely, on, they, they deal much more with online uh, or high-tech uh, 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 materials. And they're much, they're much cheaper to fabricate. So that's a really important thing to understand about automation. It's, there are two kinds of automation. And the kind that's most likely to, to colonize your, your lives, unless you're planning on going into industrial labor, is the one that is of the replicant sort. Um, so as I say, this data is online. I want to go to the stuff that I know about this, uh, which is what is the uh, what does this this coming of this kind of technological change mean for the way people experience themselves uh, as uh, as productive members of society? 
Uh, what I would say about this is that a kind of specter of uselessness hangs over a lot of discussions about, um, about automation, a kind of feeling of dread, which needs to be unpacked if you succumb to that, that this is a nameless terror. Uh, there is no way to really engage with uh, what this new machinery is going to mean in your lives. I had an insight into this um, long ago. Uh, well, I put it this way. The, the second book I ever wrote was a study called The Hidden Injuries of Class, which I wrote in the early 1970s about a traditional economy uh, in which uh, workers played a significant role in the U.S. And I made the study at just a point at which uh, there was a, it was one of capitalism's uh, famous blips, and a lot of people were unemployed. Uh, and I looked at what the consequences were to them of being unemployed versus the middle class, which seemed to be much more stably employed during the split. Twenty years after that, I began a study which appeared in uh, a book called The Corrosion of Character and then in The Culture of the New Capitalism, which was the beginnings of the world that we know today, a world of gig economy. Uh, I looked at... Uh, people both in the middle and uh, uh, the working class and lower middle class uh, whose lives were moving from having long-term careers to short-term jobs. And I, part of this, the, that's those studies was to look at what effect uh, being um, uh, that work which no longer formed a life narrative had on their experiences of being employed or unemployed. And from that, um, I began to think about a classic issue in um, uh, social theory, which is the human being as a productive creature about the value of work and giving value to life as it began to shift from these two phases of capitalism, from a, a phase which we think of as traditional capitalism to a phase which is, we're now in the high point of, or in the midpoint of, which is this new kind of flexible capitalism in which people don't have life narratives of, of they have jobs, not careers, um, and in which they're underemployed uh, is the specter rather than unemployment permanently. That's the thing about the gig economy, that it's an underemployment of people uh, rather, than, uh, a, a, rather than a kind of shedding of people uh, uh, completely. I make this distinction for you because in traditional models of unemployment, there's a curve. People sort of hold together psychologically for four or five months. 
But after about four or five months, going into six months, we find rising rates of alcoholism, sharply rising rates of alcoholism, marital abuse, uh, and drug dependency. And that's because people are hopeless, you know, that their lives are falling apart. The notion of being able to be employed at all uh, suddenly, um, uh, rather suddenly after that period, becomes, they don't believe in themselves anymore. Um, and m most welfare states are geared up to give people something to do, some kind of permanent work to, um, uh, to avoid what is called this five-month watershed. Um, in technical work, for instance, we, we list people who are unemployed for more than six months as discouraged workers. And it's apt. They're not as, you know, they don't believe in themselves anymore. So traditional unemployment policy here and in the States has been about giving people, even if they're moving lower down, putting them in full-time employment before they, they reach that watershed. In the gig economy, uh, there's a whole different configuration. I did a study of, some, of, some, of a group called Kelly workers uh, uh, who are uh, professional temps. Um, I did this in, in California uh, when I was out there uh, at a research center. And these are people who, they're nurses, they're high-level secretaries, um, uh, they're people who have uh, basically white-collar skills or service skills, who thought it would be liberating to just work whenever you wanted to, um, and uh, that, uh, you know, you could call your own hours. Uh, they were in an economy in which there was more demand for their services initially uh, than uh, there was supply of labor. While I was doing this study, that began to reverse into something you know much more, which is that there's a scarcity, uh, too many people chasing too few jobs. And in the nursing profession in California, for instance, within a period of about 10 years, um, nurses who could set their own terms by the end of the 90s, we're scrambling for any kind of work they could get. These are temporary uh, duty nurses. And that's a kind of situation much more familiar to us today. Under those conditions, what people began to feel, and here's where I come to the title of my talk, they began to feel that there was something um, that was barren in their lives that the fact that they, had, they didn't have these long-term narratives of work, they couldn't imagine a career, that they were only, they were wanted to do a job and that there wasn't really, they were scrambling for the jobs, made them depressed in a different way. We know we've done measures of things like um, um, uh, uh, alcoholism, for instance, among this group. It's much lower 
than um, the rates of alcoholism for people in an earlier generation cohort who crossed that five-month five frontier. It's more things like depression uh, and a feeling of kind of aimlessness. And the reason that I bring this up is that under the condition, those conditions, they began to enter into, um, in my mind, into a discussion that I'd had with uh, philosopher Giorgio Agamben about a term called bear life. For Agamben, this is very, in Bokomo Sasser, if any of you have not read it, my Sunday professorial, if any of you have not read it, of course you go out and buy it right away. The notion is that uh, life can be re reduced uh, by machines to a kind of bare minimum in which uh, you hover between uh, being a human and simply being an animal. For him, the model of this was the concentration camp whose mechanized forms of, of, of death reduced people to bare life. The discussion I began to have with him was, well, what about people who feel their lives are barren? That there's no organizing principle of what they should do long-term with, uh, with their lives. And the, the debate about this is that for Agamben, resistance is a form, even in a concentration camp, is a way of relieving the concept, relieving the experience of bare life. Whereas the kind of barrenness I was seeing was expressed as, by one person to me as it made no difference that you lived. There's no register, there's no trace there's no difference that you were employed, you managed to survive, you paid your credit card bills, but there was no narrative which uh, uh, made it seem that it mattered, that it that made a difference, that you struggled. And that, it seems to me, that kind of barrenness is the threat that is posed by the colonization of work by machines today. That's, to me, what the, the framework of thinking about automation should be. Not about the total loss of jobs, but about something in another kind of flexible capitalism in which the experience of productivity is episodic and produces that episodicness, produces people in the sense that they're just surviving, that they, they are barren. This bears on a very old, if you're, as I hope you all are, Marxist idea, which is that the inherent dignifying power of labor, something that aristocratic societies didn't really feel but is something that capitalism initially raised as a problematic, that to be able to work and to work long term is to create a framework of meaning. And 
that Marxian proposition that work is dignifying, it's also a proposition in, in uh, Enlightenment thinkers like Diderot, but we identify it most with Marx, is something that is undone by the kind of colonizations of long-term labor that are involved in automation. Or at least that's the shred. Uh, I want to talk a little about whether basic income um, uh, could... Uh, I see we've mistitled this slide. It's not two models of bare life, but two models of basic income. We'll fix it. <laughs> it's, it's all right. Among the lists of sins, I think this is the least, the least great. Uh, what are, what, what uh, could basic income give people the kind of support so that they could create a more long-term narrative of meaning, that they could uh, overcome the notion of being barren, of not having a purpose. Uh, basic income proposals, as we have them now, come in two forms. One is basic income proper, which is long-term, uh, espoused most notably by Philippe van Paris, uh, who started the basic income movement. And you can see here, it's on the left, versus what's called basic income as stakeholder grants, which is uh, who's mostly associated with Bruce Ackerman, who's a professor of law at Yale, which uh, is an idea of giving uh, people a sum of lump sum of money that allows them to do something that's very important to them, usually giving it to them at an early stage of life. Um, uh, what Bruce has in mind is that, uh, for instance, when you turn 21, you get enough money to pay off all your college loans so that you're free to, uh, uh, to work without thinking that you have to make uh, your loans. Whereas for Philippe Van Paris, the notion is that if you cover the bare minimums of existence, you free people to create a longer-term uh, structure of work for themselves, uh, which is not dependent on a labor market and particularly on an episodic <coughs> labor market. Uh, for Philippe von Paris, for instance, the opportunity that's here is one in which people could do work which are, is not paid labor. So that if you wanted to do social work, um, that uh, you could do this without having to scramble for a job every month or um, uh, to, to support yourself. And what both of these... Uh, um, uh, proposals about about um, uh, basic income are is that they're not means tested. You remember in our, the talk that we had last week, the evil that we found in universal credit was that it's a very subtle and deep way of means testing the people who receive it. Here, it's yours. 
There is no means test. Um, in the one, you're free to withdraw from the labor market. In the other, you're free to uh, be more entrepreneurial. To, to, you could use the money to pay off your loans or you could buy a business. Uh, you could do something that what you were invested uh, in. They have very different economic, um, I'll just show you about what this looks like. Uh, the Von Paris model, as you'll see here, is, f is financially very modest. There are four councils in Scotland, for instance, now, which are making people grants of 500 pounds a month. That's only 6,000 pounds a year as, as basic income. Uh, but it does mean, for instance, they could live rent-free. Finland has, is experimenting. Actually, this that is just, I just saw it was updated. It's now <coughs> expanded this 400,000 people rather than 2,000. And again, they're getting um, uh, about 500 pounds a month for two years, and then it escalates by, I think, about 10 pounds a month for each uh, year of life that, that it adds. The Swiss have turned down a much, much more handsome uh, uh, form of basic income. The Ackerman uh, grant, as you can see, is a big load of money. It's $80,000. And the questions around that are, if you're 21, do you really know what to do with $80,000? I do. I'd buy wine, you know. But, uh, but if you uh, wanted to pay off your college debts or you wanted to start a business, you could with that kind of money. Uh, the UK, the proposal made by the RSA, Royal Society of Arts, about that is a grant of 10,000, it's so much more prudent, the Brits, uh, of 10,000 pounds uh, for everyone under the age of, I think it's 55. Yeah, that's right. So these are very different models. And they have very different conceptions of, about, about their relationship uh, to the workforce. The universal basic income, the permanent income, seems the better to me address to the specter of uselessness. That is, it removes barrenness as a fear, whereas um, as the one-shot $80,000 payment means that if you blow it, there's nothing, you know, if you, if you buy red wines rather than white, you know, and you blow it, that's it, you know, and you're back on the existing system. But the last thing I would say about this is that although the Van Paris model um, looks better, to deal with automation and the threats of job loss, the state has to uh, interfere more with the actual organization of the labor market. Now, the Dutch tried this. When they had jobs, 
that were disappearing in the Netherlands in the noughties. Is that what you call it? The first decade of, the, uh, of our century that were automated. They would privilege those people. They get basic income support, but they would then go into a program of job sharing so that remaining jobs would be, say, chopped up into two or even three parts. You'd have your basic income, but you'd also have a third of another job, which would keep you at work. The state radically interfered with the labor market that way, right? In other words, it's deciding who is the worker for a particular job. It's not free market. And this was all targeted to people who had lo lost their jobs, not because they were themselves crummy workers, but because they had been replaced by a machine. So the implication of doing what Philippe von Paris wants to do is that the state also, to make this really work, to address the kind of problems I've laid out to you, the state has really got to be an active player in the labor market, i.e., that's what socialism looks like, modern socialism. What Bruce Ackerman is proposing is a, what's so-called stakeholder basic income is a form of entrepreneurial capitalism. Whereas what this Dutch experiment, uh, which uh, then wilted for reasons you don't want to know, but uh, the basic movement income about it is, this is what socialism should look like in the future. It, re, it, uh, it shapes the job market in order that people are never exposed to the kind of barrenness which replicant forms of automation can introduce in their experience. So that's what I wanted to lay out to you on this subject. It, are you in any doubt which of these two I prefer? <laughs> I, I see many of the students I've had here if you, uh, over the years. Um, you know, this is the way forward with socialism. And it means, it means a radical rethinking of the labor market. It's not about inequality. It's about something much more profound than inequality. It's about giving people the means to be productive human beings and so to give them a sense of purpose in life. So that's what I want to say. Some profound problems as you, as you said and what comes to my mind is what kind of state can we imagine that would care enough to actually take these hard choices? Um, but I won't say more because my task now is to introduce Professor Lord Sadowski. Would you like to take the Good evening, and uh, it's a great pleasure to follow uh, Richard. Um, very important topic that he's covered. Um, uh, hugely important, and what, all I'm going to say is really, to, all I'm going to offer is a few footnotes to uh, to what you've already heard. Uh, first, start briefly, <laughs> briefly with um, 
the historical, historical response to technology, and I think you can divide it into two uh, opposite views. The hope that it will make possible um, shorter hours of having to work for one's living um, and therefore create time for doing you know, more other things that might be more fulfilling. And secondly, the fear of unemployment, redundancy, and what you called uselessness. So I think these two, the alternation of hope and fear have been constant throughout uh, uh, in people's reactions. Uh, Well, the economics of it, very briefly, uh, in, in 1831... David Ricardo startled his contemporaries by accepting the arguments of the Luddites. Um, these were the uh, handling weavers threatened by uh, extinction through the introduction of power looms in, in the factories. And, and what Ricardo said was that theoretically their argument was correct that the introduction of machinery would threaten what he called, in a a, a rather graphic phrase, the redundancy of the human race. But that wouldn't happen, in fact. Um, uh, It neglected longer-term repercussions and a whole set of what are known as compensations, so that, in fact, there wouldn't be any net loss of jobs, that rather there would be an increasing number of jobs um, for an increasing population. And ever since that time, the the argument of economists has been that technology would create new jobs in new occupations to the extent that the new jobs were wanted, Uh, And that was as a result of rising incomes creating increased demand, rising real incomes creating increased demand for new jobs. And what um, they uh, looked forward to was that people would be given an increasing choice between either working uh, longer for increased incomes uh, or the same length for increase, or taking, or taking the increased out, incomes out in terms of leisure. So there was this sort of trade-off that became standard in economists' discussion of, of this thing. Well, let's go uh, fast forward to Keynes. Um, in, eight, in, in 1930, he wrote uh, a pamphlet called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren mm-hmm. at 1930. And so by now, he thought, most of us would not have to work more than 15 hours a week for a living. He thought that the reduction of hours uh, of work would produce a temporary nervous breakdown. Uh, it was the phrase he used. Uh, but this would be overcome. Um, and the, ner- the nervous breakdown was due to the fact people wouldn't know what to do with the increased leisure which technology was winning for them. Uh, they wouldn't know what to do. But in the, you know, sooner or later, in the long run, a favorite phrase by economists, um, in the long run, they would find enhanced possibilities in, the, in their lives um, and a blissful future of greater leisure uh, beckoned. Of course, the way Keynes called about leisure was a bit, you know, we, we, we shouldn't really interpret it as idleness. It's actually just doing things that you didn't have to do in order to earn a living. Um, so voluntarily chosen activity, not forced by need. Um, and Keynes also thought that the fuller the economy 
um, the fuller employment uh, the economy was being run at, the fuller level, you know, the more, you know, if it was run full employment, this hour of bliss would come faster. So his full employment policies really were quite consistent with his idea of capital abundance as something to look forward to. And history seemed to be on the side of this optimistic forecast. Hours of work had been steadily falling since the 1870s. Average real incomes were rising. There was more holiday time, more discretionary income to spend outside work. Well, let's go fast forwards to the rise of the robots. That's today. Um, and the recent rise of the robots literature, the newspaper headlines, the newspaper stories, have emphasized the threat to jobs far more than the possibilities of leisure. Partly this is because it comes in the afterwash of heavy unemployment, you know, the experience of 2008 and, and after. And moreover, in, in, in Britain in particular, hours of work have stopped falling Real, income, real incomes have been stagnant and jobs insecurity has grown. We work on average longer hours in the UK than in most of what we regard as the successful European countries. Um, the more specific cause of the alarm is the speed up in computing power um, behind which is Moore's fearsome so-called law. Computers halve in price and double in power every two years. And we now know that computers, automated systems, can take on a, an increasing range of cognitive tasks. Not just unskilled, but increasing levels of skill can be, um, can be done by automated systems. So it's only a matter of time, it's argued, before all the jobs humans now do uh, will be automated. Um, so where will that leave us as humans? Um, so experts are divided on, on this crucial question. And um, Richard has al already um, talked about the division between the replicant function uh, of robots and what I would call their, their complement function. I mean, I don't know whether... The term replicant actually comes from the film, The Blade Runner, probably not. It's very, nothing very original comes from films as such. But anyway, that, that popularized the idea of the replicant. Um, and the consensus of the experts, and there are endless reports upon this, you know, um, of course they don't know, but the consensus of the experts is that we are furthest uh, from job automation in situations involving either complex social interactions, such as performing in live concerts or in tricky negotiations or managing teams of people, or those involving complex unstructured environments like cleaning jobs and all kinds of things like that. Lovely jobs at the top and lousy jobs at the bottom will be left for humans in one um, sort of characterization. And the contrast in the second case is between factories where nearly every action is completely controlled and, 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 uh, and, and, and those 
those sort of situations in which you know there, it, you can't exert that kind of control. There are too many things to do that can't be programmed. Carl Frey calls these um, these obstacles the engineering bottlenecks to total um, automation. Now, what about creativity? I mean, that's a really interesting question. If um, by creativity we mean recombining existing knowledge in new ways, then automated systems, by virtue of instantaneous access to large data and speed of computing, may be even more creative than human beings. And that's one uh, sort of way of, of, of looking at, at, at what might happen. Um, if by creativity we mean the capacity to come up with genuinely new ideas, we may continue to believe that humans will retain a decisive advantage over, over automated systems. For example, could a robot have come up with Einstein's theory of relativity? Um, the idea of robots as complements rather than replicants is consistent with this idea of a continued role for creativity in the sense of having new ideas. In economics, um, an increasingly uh, made distinction is between closed and open worlds. Chess is a closed world because there's a finite number of things which can happen. So are games of chance. But, as the economist Lars Sill says, the important activities of most economic agents do not usually include throwing dice or spinning roulette wheels. Now, there's a whole, there's a whole sort of most interesting discussion about the meaning and reality of consciousness, or what in older language used to be called free will. Um, and and that, that is an open question among, among philosophers. Is there, is there something uniquely human that will remain for humans to do? Um, in 2017, Carl um, uh, Frey and Michael Osborne published a now famous study, which you referred to, I think, which found that 47% of all U.S. employees are in occupations that are at high risk yeah. of being automated in the next 10 to 20 years. And, and this study generated great alarm. Um, however, a number of criticisms have been leveled at it since, um, uh, uh, since then, uh, and Frey himself says that the study was widely misunderstood. He claimed that it identified a risk of automation only, a risk. Right. In his view, many of these jobs will not actually disappear, but rather the composition of tasks uh, will change. He pointed out that the, he, the job of a farmer today involves a very different skill set than it did the, than at the beginning of the 19th century, since farmers now use tractors and have GS, GPS technology, milking machines, and so on. So, I mean, he himself seemed to row back on um, some of the implications um, that were drawn um, from um, his study. Other commentators uh, have argued that any given job consists of a variety of tasks, only some of which um, can, uh, are susceptible um, to automation. 
So the fact that automation of many jobs is technically feasible doesn't mean that they will be automated. Right. It depends on many other things, not least the commercial environment and attitudes to change. So, um, there's one thing I think um, I'm pretty clear about, uh, and that is that we can't just leave it to the market. The benefits of automation won't be realized without a huge amount of what Keynes calls so social breakage. And in order to minimize that, we do need policy interventions. So what form might these policy interventions take? One idea which is very much in vogue, and, and um, you ended up with that, is the idea of a universal basic income. The idea really is to give people more choice between work and leisure. And by this we, we must include having greater control over the conditions of work. Right. To me, um, the great attraction um, uh, of, of the argument is to um, increase people's choice when productivity and real incomes are rising. I think those are the conditions that you, you need to put into place. And if those two things are happening, then I think it's natural to give, to think of people having more choice and advocating, advocating that. Um, in some ways, one might think of its vogue as a substitute for lost bargaining power in the workplace. However, I think there are problems. I think there are problems um, with, with uh, the basic income idea, some of which I think you touched on. But um, uh, let me just um, uh, make three points in conclusion. First, um, uh, the, the fear that basic income um, will stop lives um, being um, uh, uh, bare, but they might be barren. Um, uh, you know, uh, at the moment, um, it, it's, um, it, it's, uh, uh, there's a huge um, uh, objection to um, huge objection to the um, uh, moral objection, if you like, to the idea of giving people um, something for nothing. Um, uh, and, and, and I think that, that has to be overcome. A second, a second objection, um, I think, is, is also a moral objection. Um, the income, um, there's an objection to, to income which doesn't depend um, on your own efforts. Um, I, think, uh, I think, you know, you have an analogy with the economist's uh, idea of rent. Um, you, you, um, you, you sort of, um, you're, I mean, un unearned, the idea of unearned income is, is, is quite uncomfortable uh, from a moral point of view. It was, one of the, it was one of the big attacks that economists made on certain classes of rentiers in the past. And the idea here that you're getting, 
something that you're, you haven't really earned by your own efforts uh, does um, uh, uh, cause uh, some moral disquiet. And the third um, sort of objection is um, to the cost um, to offer a, ch a choice of basic income, to offer people a basic income, is costly. Um, it, um, it, uh, uh, you know, it, it, um, what does it require for that to be possible? Um, it, it requires a higher, a higher levels of taxation. Um, and, um, uh, and, 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 you know, so the argument is, how can we afford it? I think people will will um, will will find uh, uh, an objection there. Um, there are there there. It's not a new idea. The idea of a basic income has got a long history. It's uh, been proposed in in the form of a national dividend, um, uh, which um, uh, society will draw from uh, as its uh, productivity, uh, as its growth of wealth. Uh, takes place, um, and and that's fine. If you have, you know, you can think of it as an annual wealth tax, which um, in, in, you know grows in line with economic growth and therefore pays for for the for the basic uh, income. But if growth is very very um, uh, slow, um, then the growth in the national dividend that's available to be paid out as basic income will also be very low. And it'll take a long time before you're really, people are being offered a real choice between uh, working and not working. So apart from the moral objections, there are quite serious economic obstacles, if you like. Other things in the economy have to be going quite well for people to take to the idea of um, a, a universal basic income. And so I think those are, going to be, uh, those are going to be obstacles to its general adoption. I wouldn't be at all against experiments. I'm quite sympathetic to the idea. But I think in practice, it's going to be very, very difficult to achieve on any um, scale um, sufficient to give people a real choice. So uh, those are just footnotes to what Richard said, well, well. and um, I'd like to leave it there. And uh, thank you very much for what you have said, and I look forward to a good discussion. Thank you. Could, could you uh, move the next slide along, which has the... Here, I'll do it. This is the, web, uh, the website. Uh, sorry. Did you want to respond? No, let's have let's have discussion. So the floor is open to questions. Um, you with the blue jumper on. Can you wait for the microphone? And please say who you are and where you're from. Sure. Hi there, uh, my name's Rory. Uh, I'm with the Inequalities Institute in their master's program, uh, doing the MSc Inequalities. Uh, my question is around the, the UBI and kind of tying it into last week. So Richard, last week you talked kind of about obligations and how we could build a welfare state around obligations. And I was wondering, kind of have you thought about the 
practicalities of obligations, if we did have a universal basic income, would there be any kind of obligations in the way maybe you talked about last week, more human and social obligations about looking after family members and gardens and being involved in our community? And I'm interested in particular about you talking about the dignity of work, and I think that's a real dividing line on the left about universal basic income. Uh, do we find some dignity and humanity in labour market paid work, or is it just about work at all? Is it about contributing? And where do you kind of draw that line? And kind of a secondary question, maybe for both of you, about the impacts you think a universal basic income would have on the labour market. Would we see, for example, cleaners being paid more because of the competition for their time? They don't need to get up at four in the morning and go clean that building but perhaps I would get paid more because they could not be in the labor market. What will the impacts be? Wow, those are two big questions. Uh, uh, let me say about the first one that, I mean, I'm really trying to think about this as a socialist, you know, which is that if you give people uh, some kind of material security, uh, that that doesn't mean that they're um, that they're freed of obligation, and but it means that there's a different kind of way of shaping people's duties to others and um, and uh, the responsibility they get for having this kind of support. That may seem very la di da to you, you know, that people, uh, if you took the view that people are basically, all they want to do is sit around and drink beer, uh, you would say, that's what's that about? My own experience of this in dealing with unemployed people is that they want something that means that they make a difference in other people's lives. Sure, there are louts, you know, the f famous conservative horror story of the guy who's drinking all day and, and on benefits. But that's not a very realistic picture, at least what I've found from my research. People want to make a difference to themselves and other people. We don't organize that in welfare systems. Even unions, this is a big, big debate. When I lived in America, I had with people in, in uh, labor unions in, in, in the states, they should be social organizations, you know? They should be organizing, you know, when they're, when they should be a kind of intermediate organization to do what's missing in capitalism. So, you know, I look at this universal income as a way for another kind of, maybe won't be here in, in labor unions, communities could do that, but the idea is not to leave people individually alone in this, that they would have that there would be responsibilities that come for getting this kind of support. And I think that that model is, which by the way, is the, it's, a, it's a very old model of welfare in Judaism, that the community supports uh, people who have to give something back and turn for that material support. Uh, it's in Leviticus, for instance. But it requires today, it requires a kind of really social view of, of socialism. So that's how I'd respond to your first question. 
Yeah, I think if, uh, if part of your income comes from, say, a general tax, like a, uh, and a part of an increasing national dividend, then you won't have to work as hard. People won't have to work as much for their, um, for their um, income. In other words, uh, it, might, it might be um, quite consistent with a reduction in hours of work. Um, uh, which is the aim, um, I think. Um, that's been the aim of all, all the reform, to reduce the number of hours you've got to work. Um, so if you have an additional income, which, uh, then it may be a way, in, 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 in way of reducing, reducing that. Your, your, your income now is partly from your regular job and partly from um, uh, jo- uh, activity which, you're, you, which right, your right. basic income makes possible. And in that case, you have more choice. And hours of work, um, as, they're now, uh, as they're now constructed, the series of hours of work will start showing a, a fall, which they have not done um, since uh, for the last 30 or 40 years in, in the UK at any rate. So I think, I think, um, I think it, 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 that, that's a good, that's that's a a good, good, good combination. Yeah. Could I just say one thing about this? I'd really like to, since you were in the Inequalities Institute, I'd like to get the whole subject, this whole subject of welfare off thinking about inequality. And that's what basically we've done today and, and uh, last week. I really think the notion that inequality is uh, it, certainly it makes very little difference in what we're talking about. If you got rid of the top 1%, that doesn't solve the problem of how do you find purpose for non-paid labor. It's just irrelevant. And I think, uh, particularly in Britain, because you've got this long obsession with class, you pay too much attention to inequality. It's just, I know this, you know, I grew up in the working class, I I know this well. Uh, Working class people do not obsess about John D. Rockefeller. They have other obsessions. So I think what we're talking about here is something that is a way of getting out of a kind of paralysis that the left has, has had in this country mm. about, uh, uh, about all of this. Uh, working less is, is not going to do anything about, about inequality. No, you, yeah, no, uh, yeah. No, it's not. It's, it's, no, what, 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 what we've got to try and do is arrange a way in which working less um, uh, doesn't lead to reduction in income, um, and and um, uh, you know that that's what improvements in productivity should make possible, and that's what actually happened in say the golden age um, of the 60s and 70s. Right. I mean, unions were able to push for increased increased wages um, in return for increased productivity, and as a result of the rising living standards. Uh, Workers were able um, to reduce the hours of work, and so there was this there was this holy trinity, if you like, that was taking place, and that was all destroyed by Thatcher and the Thatcherite revolution. And so, since then, I mean, first of all, 
the unions were destroyed. Secondly, um, of course, um, the, the, the um, uh, productivity uh, then uh, wasn't as great thereafter, productivity as, as it had been. And so you're in this new situation. People are trying to find ways of reviving, um, uh, reviving the... <laughs> The story of progress, really, right, um, right. in one way or another. That's, that's really what we're looking for. Yeah. We're very chatty, by the way. You have to that's shut good. us up, you know, for, for we to spend hours. On Stop it. talking, yeah. <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> Hi, um, my name's Henrietta Lynch. Um, I don't know where I'm from at the moment, apart from just coming back from living in Germany for quite a long time. And I, well, first of all, quick comment. Uh, we seem to be stuck in some weird uh, Anglosphere bubble where we've forgotten that other countries in Europe do still have very strong unions and do have high productivity despite low working uh, weeks comparison with here. And I can think of uh, examples of automation in the automotive industry there where people have got together and agreed. Um, automation. Anyway, um, you uh, this is agreed. This the age of Brexit, you know. <laughs> anyway, this wasn't well. actually going to be, uh, well, they've agreed that they've actually got higher salaries through the automation and better quality of life. And that's happened in, in various industries across uh, different spheres in Europe. But they do still have problems like we do have here and in America. Anyway, two comments. Isn't the National Health Service and what was the provision of uh, tertiary, as in degree level education, to all members of our uh, community in Britain? Uh, you know, that could be like a proxy um, payment for, um, you know, um, Absolutely. And also uh, provision of housing. So if we're looking and transport. So if we're looking at, you know, trying to cut down costs for the provision of, you know, um, things which increase our, um, you know, um, quality of life, I think Keynes would have referred to all these things. We seem to have gone backwards in taking them away. I mean, there are also the rest of most of Europe, apart from. Uh, Holland, I believe, they don't have fees for university at all, except for small, very, very small fees. Uh, and we've gone completely backwards. I mean, th this is a way of also guaranteeing things like um, so many things, social cohesion, opportunities across life. If you're going to have these you know, longer lives, healthier lives, lives with more time on our hands, wouldn't it be better if we were spending them in education and not necessarily just sure. at early stage it goes on? Yeah. Um, well, the one thing I can tell you about this, that, uh, and this relates to Bob's comment about could we afford um, basic income. This group that Van Paris is leads, which I'm, I, um, which I'm part of. Uh, is now trying to figure out what it actually would take to provide uh, a level of, say, a thousand euros a month as basic income. They're trying to figure out what services, what expenditures, what kind of taxation that would require. And the first studies of this, uh, which I'll put online, 
so that it's actually, if the tax system were uh, jiggered somewhat, and if certain kinds of expenditures were um, uh, reformulated, that a basic income of a thousand euros a month is doable. Now, uh, the wrinkle in this is that Van Paris uh, thinks that certain things that are provided by the state for free should come out of basic income. And it's, it is all very fine-grained. He doesn't believe that dental care, for instance, should be free. I don't know why. But anyhow, you can argue with all the details about this. But the idea about this in general is that basic income only looks expensive because of the way we think about uh, uh, provision of uh, use of state resources uh, as a whole. If you went back to the pie chart that I showed you at the very beginning, the first lecture, you'd see that there are lots and lots of expenditures which in a state could be squeezed, you know, that, uh, that would allow a kind of redistribution. The most notable one is in Britain, for instance, is you can trade a nuclear submarine for real, uh, uh, real advantages for ordinary people in terms of their, um, uh, of the amount of money that they would have to spend on the universal uh, income. This is not, you know, an uh, Pollyanna exercise because what gets cut, you know, will always be a subject for debate. But the point they want to make is that this is not a luxury frill. And they would dispute, he would dispute you, Bob, in saying that you don't have to have a booming economy on the 60s or 70s model in order to find the money to make universal um, income possible. Now, I don't know anything about this, but it would be interesting to look at the proposition, he, he would dispute the proposition that this is basically a kind of, it's a kind of benefit of economic growth. To him it's yeah, a kind of yeah. re, redistributing of what's there basically already. Well, I think, you, you know, you, you can't avoid the issue of uh, redistribution. Of course, it would, it would require redistribution. It would. It would require, much, it would require higher levels of taxation um, uh, on, 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 on the wealthy, but not just on the wealthy, but on, you know, all the way down. And, um, and I think, I think, I think the, mo the most difficult thing about a basic income, if it's, if it's to, be, you know, to be an alternative living wage, at any rate, is um, this uh, something for nothing argument. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, uh, the national, uh, national dividend will be paid to people who haven't earned it. Um, and it's, it's one thing to say, okay, I mean, it, you know, it should go to people who, who have earned it in some way. But to say it should be universal and to go, and, and to be just a product of, of, the, 
of, of the national effort, so to speak, which causes incomes in general to rise um, as the result of, you know, efforts that people make, that it should be universally distributed. Now, that's a different argument, and the only way you can, the only way I think you can win that argument is probably on the social, socialist principle that, in yes. fact, there should be much more equality of income, which is, an old, which is an old argument. It's a perfectly good argument, but it shouldn't be used specifically in support of universal basic income, I think. That, you know, I, I, I've never been against redistribution, but if you um, say, look, I mean, you're, 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 um, you're giving everyone a basic income as of right, and we're able to afford it because of the growing wealth of the economy, then I think you are, um, you are open to the argument. You're giving a lot of people something for nothing. They don't have to contribute in any way. They just get it. And well, that's fine if it's very, very small. They still have to contribute. But if you try to raise it to a point of giving people a real choice, you run into that argument. Do you think, though, that... I mean, if you're actually... A lot of the work that needs to be done in society is done on um, a basis uh, that you have an obligation to, to do this... You're, I, I mean, I think that's still, that's still a rather, um, it's a notion that you have to earn the right to have a, a, a minimal life. Yeah. But you can earn that in ways which are not quantifiable. I mean, for instance, uh, you mentioned the NHS. And I think uh, one of the tragedies of the NHS is that, that it uses voluntary labor very poorly, very poorly. And there are lots of reasons because of union structures and so on, which uh, have made that possible. But there are lots of tasks like that which people ought to do and could be obliged to do which don't figure in the notion that they get paid for them. And yeah, I mean, well. it's, uh, the issue about this is that if you, it's not getting an economic, it's not getting a free ride experientially. That's not what basic income is about. It's about freeing people from the anxiety of not knowing where, the, you know, whether they're going to have enough to, to eat or what their next job is going to be in order for them to reorganize what they want to do in ways that may be more socially valuable to others. That's, what, that's the social in this socialist principle. Perhaps we could pause that one there, because we do have a question. Uh, the man in the Sorry, we, we are, as I say. Yeah. Sorry. I may have two questions, so your uh, Thank you. Ramesh Shukla. Ask a question. I'm simply visiting uh, LSE. Um, I'm, I'm a visitor to LSE. Um, I think the idea of universal income is probably the... And... Uh, how do I... Nearer, okay, fine, fine. Um, yes, I think it is, it is the idea of tomorrow, certainly, certainly. And, but it has to get the support also the uh, uh, moral philosophers, perhaps, and also psychologists. We must understand what will it do to our 
<laughs> All right. Okay. Hello. Hello. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, we need the support of, of the psychologists also on this. What will it do to our psyches? What uh, do we do to what? Psyche. Our psyche. Um, Are you asking that as a question? I'm, yes, I'm going to ask the question now. Okay, because we're nearly out yeah. of time. The question so is ask this, us a brief question. The question is a small one. The, you say that the greatest advantage of the system is that there will be no means testing. But you know, we have, I mean, there, is there are, there are problems with disability in the society. Now, uh, they would certainly need to be uh, uh, assessed. So, uh, uh, that question of, I mean, the, uh, yes, how, how would you tackle that? Um, so you cannot wholly get rid of the... I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, Let's the, have one more question. Let's have one more question. There was a fellow there, the gray jumper on the left. I will be brief. Um, Agamben tried to talk about uh, bear life in relation... Agamben tried to talk about bear life in relationship with uh, sovereign uh, power. Right. So, uh, since you uh, perfectly know this, the question of the right to have rights, how can it be addressed by a welfare after beverage in relationship with uh, basic uh, income, since it is uh, often conceived as a national dividend? This is one point. The second point is the, mor the moral uh, aspect of job. I think that uh, for the 90% of the world, job is not a choice. So. Morality maybe should be uh, turned from a total different perspective because uh, it is not about free choice for uh, so many people. And the morality was often used for disciplining people and pushing them to do a job. And third point is that the <laughs> issue of... Uh, <laughs> the issue Let's of, take two. Let's take those two, okay? okay. Okay, I'm sorry, we're obliged to leave this room in five minutes. It's the only, otherwise, we could stay all night. It's sad and all of that. Well, I would just say, I want to say one thing about Agamben. Uh, and that is that the notion of, it's really about, uh, like Foucault, who was very much a, a, an influence on Agamben, the notion of transcending bare life is where you have the right to rights. That is, you are not serviced as a subject. Somebody is not deciding what you need and giving it to you. But you have the right to be what I was calling the last time an agent, to assert the fact that you have rights and that you're conscious of them. And the issue, it seems to me, the, the, to me, the moral issue is how does that work, if it does work, within a framework of economic security? Because that's basically what we're talking about. Will people have a sense of being agents, entitled, if you give them economic security? If you don't give them economic security, will that motivate them to be more aggressive to assert their rights. My own view about this is that the right to have rights is not an economic uh, phenomenon. That you don't need to make traumatize people economically 
in order to energize them as political subjects. That, that's my view. You get the final word. No, well, yeah, just we've got to finish now. I mean, first of all, I think there's always been a very, very strong moral objection to unearned income. I mean, that's just somehow very deeply etched into, into our whole idea of work, leisure, contribution, everything. And, and so one's got to sort of remove... Um, the, the remove um, the, the, the implication that your basic income is unearned in some way, that it's just given to you as a result of taxing up a lot of other people or even maybe even taxing you, but you're getting something unearned. I mean, you could look at the classical economists. Unearned income was, was their point of attack on, 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 on the rentier class, la- landlords and all kinds of things. So you've got to get over the, the objection to unearned income. Um, uh, that says that's point one, and I think that's a strong moral. And the, the other thing is um, um, you, 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 if you say there should be an obligation to contribute in some way um, in, in, in return for um, this um, uh, income that's going to come to you, um, the basic income, then you're saying it's sort of, um, it becomes earned income. I mean, and, and earned income oh. is, is, is the same as a wage. I mean, you know, it's no, you have, you, in, in return for this income, you've got to contribute something. You've got to work. You've got to do some work. Because otherwise, it's unfair that you get it for doing absolutely nothing, that you're not any longer part of the labor. It's a free gift. If you, as soon as you say you've got to earn it in some way, well, you're talking about, you know, how much, how much work do you have to do for this sort of income? And you're back, really, into, into the uh, existing paradigm. You haven't escaped it. <laughs> If I could intervene, they, they didn't wire me up, so forgive me. I hope you can hear me. I, I do have can. a question. Um, just to finish with, Richard, you painted a, a, a picture of a scenario in which more and more people potentially are um, basically miserable. They don't feel valuable as human beings. If we imagine a scenario in which more and more people are feeling that that is what their lives are made up of, seems to lead to more and more social unrest, more and more violence one against the other. And it may no longer be a debating point about whether or not one should introduce some kind of livelihoods for them, but you just need to act to introduce a social um, uh, income base. Can you respond to that? That it may not be a choice because we tip into chaos. uh, I'm going to give you my thing here. Here I am, the chair, and I'm going to go a couple of minutes over. Um, <laughs> the question I had was that uh, Richard painted a picture of a scenario of the future where uh, more and more people are basically um, discontented with their lives, they're depressed, um, they're engaged in violence one against the other. And if this grows in terms of the proportion of the population who are feeling that way because of increasing automation, in that scenario, perhaps no longer is there a choice for governments as to act, that they have to act. And if they have to act, 
is it any more a question of a debating point about whether they're deserving or not, or whether they've earned the income, but surely we would not allow people to simply starve. Well, I agree with that. Um, uh, I mean, this is a fundamental disagreement between the two of us. Uh, But, um, I mean, the only thing I'd, I'd... comment on that is that I don't think that the, the justification for the kind of socialism I'd like to see only has to do with automation. I think it's a way into looking at ways of going back to a Gambon of depriving people of a sense of agency. There are many other ways that do that too. I'd maybe be an unfair to you in saying that Inequality doesn't matter in that context. But um, the kind of upset about this is not one, in my mind, of what people deserve, but of ways of creating a social order. And I think reckonings, and certainly quantified reckonings through wages of what people deserve is not a way to create a social order. And you certainly can't base a welfare state on it. That's, that's yeah. my own view. I mean, just one, one sentence. I think it'd be much easier to do a lot of what you're proposing, which I don't object, you know, I'm not, not against it, if you have full employment. That's true. And so, in a way, yeah, the, uh, the, the other bit of Keynes comes into the reckoning, <laughs> not just the future uh, possibilities for our grandchildren, but the present possibilities for um, uh, people of working age. I give this back to you. (laughs) Very sadly, we must close. Will you join with me in thanking our uh, speakers for a really (laughs) instructive debate?